Good evening and welcome to this episode of The Mary Trump Show. I am thrilled and honored to have as my guest Ruth Benyat, author of the very prescient must read <laughs> Strong Men from Mussolini to the Present, sorry, Strong Men, and uh, the excellent newsletter Lucid Ruth. It is really good to see you and have you on this evening. How are you? How are you grappling with the fact that uh, you were right about everything? And I'm going to safe to assume you would rather have been wrong. (laughs) And, uh, you know, like stuff keeps happening. So we keep the hits keep coming. Uh, We've got bad news out of Italy. Um, Things here are dire. So how how are you? I'm or is good. that not a fair um, question? No, I'm good. I'm really pleased to be speaking with you. You two have been prescient about so many things. Um, and I don't know, as a historian, um, which is how, in my case, I've been able to kind of see Trump uh, for what he was really early. Um, somehow there is a certain consolation that, that history has certain patterns doesn't mean that good things are going to come of those patterns right away, but that, um, that society, we're not the first society to go through this and there are ways that we can learn from, uh, resistance efforts and stuff like that. So that's the optimistic side. That, that is optimistic. My, I, although I have to be honest, I've, you know, I just, I read your book again and, and it had a very different, uh, it was a very different experience from when I read it when it first came out a couple of years ago, um, because things are worse, quite yeah. frankly. And I don't think a lot of us anticipated that they would be worse if Donald lost, which he did resoundingly. Um, but, you know, part of the problem is the Republican Party didn't lose resoundingly. Uh, yeah. And I'm beginning to wonder, do we learn? Do we learn enough because we are at what seems to be uh, or on what seems to be a knife's edge here. Uh, and this is happening. It feels like it's happening again. Um, and in terms of, you know, the rise of authoritarianism in Europe, uh, we already have some entrenched autocrats there. We've got Orban in Hungary. We've got Erdogan in Turkey. Uh, and now in Italy, um, we have mm-hmm. a neo-fascist who will likely be prime minister if she's not already. <laughs> I, I don't know when the election or I don't know how how that system works. But clearly, I mean, she's on the brink of becoming yeah. prime minister of Italy. And as you've pointed out in a couple of recent pieces, she's worse than some of her immediate predecessors like Berlusconi. Uh, and she is as she's akin to Mussolini in a way that they aren't. She's worse than Marine Le Pen, which is really saying something. Um, And all of this is happening in the context of the United States grappling with its own. And it's not even a flirtation anymore. We have one political party that is, that is full on. uh, I think it's a fascist party at the very uh, least it's a pro pro authoritarian anti-democratic party and obviously if the republican party takes over that shifts 
that changes the game inordinately. But, and I think the reason all of this is, is feels even worse than it is, is because we're, it's all unfolding in an entirely new context, which is mm-hmm. climate change. We don't mm-hmm. have the luxury of decades to make a mistake and then fix everything. Not that we've ever fixed everything, but you know what I'm saying? Does that yeah. urgency, or I guess I should ask first, how does that urgency play out in what we see happening everywhere? Well, there's a very uh, large scale, almost uh, existential view is that, I mean, as we see with Putin's Russia, um, this kind of autocracy, they're, they're not sustainable. Right. They, they're just not. And sooner or later, they all come to a bad end. And a lot of these uh, strongmen are also not getting any younger, uh, including Mr. Trump. Yeah. And at the broadest level, I really see these guys, uh, I know there's a woman now, but these guys uh, as, as dinosaurs, Mm-hmm. clinging to their outmoded fossil fuels and their repression and their lies. And they're, they know they're, um, they know they're not going to last forever, which is one reason I think Putin did what he did. And they're clinging on for dear life to exploit and plunder as much as possible before it, their time is up. Because there is, there's a huge amount of global energy for a progressive new era. And 2019 was the largest, was the biggest year on record for nonviolent protest. Right. So there's this clash, but you're right that the cycle where, you know, one society after another, as I document in my book, get into this and they don't see it in time and they're in denial. We don't have that, uh, that we don't have that time, but that's also why the global protest movement look what's going on in iran and they're all different but they are acquiring an energy and a momentum that perhaps um we didn't see before it does feel like the urgency cut cuts both ways on on the one hand as you say there is a a, i think a significant majority of people who are on the right side of things and do want change for the better and do want sustainable energy and 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 human rights for everybody, uh, et cetera. Um, and that the, the sense that we're running out of time is definitely a motivating factor, but it also feels like the right co-ops, the fear that that engenders to, um, fire up its significant minority of people. Yes. Uh, yes. Survivalism. In mm-hmm. fact, a really important thing is um, the predominance of these, what I call survivalist ideologies. Great replacement theory is one mm-hmm. um, where, you know, the idea, because to motivate people to, to be ready to do violence or to be ready to embrace the big lie and be corrupt, because it's a form of corruption, embracing election denial, mm-hmm. you have to convince them that uh, there's an existential threat that they're in mortal danger. And that's what great replacement theory does. That's what, um, you know, all this like discourse of democratic cities as crime ridden, you know, dens of anarchy or what Georgia Maloney, the new 
you know, to soon to be prime minister, she actually embraces, believe it or not, she's to the right of Tucker Carlson mm-hmm. because her version of great replacement theory isn't just that there's demographic change going on and there's more non-whites being born. So let's say a passive thing. She actually believes it's well-documented, many tweets, many, many speeches that there's a plot by the EU and George Soros mm-hmm. to flood Europe and Italy with non-white immigration and depress wages of white workers and also, of course, extinguish white Christian civilization. So these are like this kind of survivalism. And Donald Trump is also a specialist in this, where mm-hmm. on January 6th, he said, if we don't fight, you know, we won't have a country anymore. So the specter of obliteration is exactly what you're saying. It's harnessing this Instead of the obliteration that could come through climate change, you deny it and and you have a different kind of existential threat that uh, is affecting my, you know the white male minority, and you harness that rage. Uh, it's really it's really disturbing. But that's that survivalism. I I think will get stronger and stronger. Absolutely. And what's also disturbing, besides the fact that George Soros seems to be so busy trying to undermine the world, (laughs) I still haven't gotten a check from him. So I don't know what's up with that. But uh, is is that the the real threats are threats that the right engenders and the other threats are almost entirely uh, manufactured by them for that purpose. And I, I have no doubt in my mind that uh, Tucker Carlson will start echoing or mimicking Maloney. Uh, oh yeah. When he, you know, his current shtick re- reaches the end of its um, viability when it's not terrifying enough, you know, and he, he needs yeah. to um, draw more people in. Um, and, you know, that that also should remind us, as you do in, uh, I think it was your recent piece for The Atlantic. Well, actually, they, they both touched on this, the piece in The Atlantic and the piece in MSNBC.com. Uh, you uh, talk about the fact that Maloney has ties to the far right in this country, or I should just say the Republican yeah. Party in this country. She spoke at CPAC in 2022, for God's sake, so... Um, Yeah, that's very important. She's fluent in many languages, but um, you're going to see more of her. And for those who, uh, probably not your audience, but those who uh, have struggled to see the GOP as a far-right authoritarian party, it's very enlightening that, um, I think I quote it in the MSNBC piece, she says very matter-of-factly, she had an interview with the Washington Post where she was there's a lot of whitewashing. She says, I'm a conservative. I'm just a patriot, mm-hmm. which, you know, and, and this is not true. She's a neo-fascist. Right. But she, she said, oh, um, you know, the, 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 the Republican Party, we're, we have the same battles. We're in touch. We have cultural exchanges. And she said their fights are things that we have discussed, too. And she said they are registered as one of the European conservatives. And so this is a very matter-of-fact way of just acknowledging that the GOP is considered by people like Orban and Maloney as a far-right authoritarian party. It's just in this country, it's been very difficult to get people to see it in that frame. Um, That's been my big battle, first with Trump and then with all of the GOP. But that's very enlightening. Um, and we should we should think about that, what that means that she just takes it for granted. 
Yeah, I, I want to get to the fact that um, about the whole gender washing issue that I one I, I think that's a t- term you coined, and I think it's I think it's awesome and and very illustrative. I want to get to that in a second, but I want to stick with with uh, this. You you wrote recently. Um, history teacher teaches us that whenever extremism is normalized, its effects mm-hmm. remain in the culture. So I it seems to me that that this has been happening here in an accelerated manner since Mm -hmm. 2016 and maybe counterintuitively, maybe ironically, or maybe inevitably, um, it feels like it's even, it's worsened since Donald lost (laughs) in 2020. Mm -hmm. So um, two questions about that one, how, first of all, how unusual is it for somebody with the kinds of authoritarian aspirations Donald has um, and the incredibly powerful um, system he had supporting him to lose power. And secondly, how dangerous is is it and in what ways is it dangerous that he continues to be continue to be the de facto leader of the Republican Party? Well, the second thing, it's absolutely anomalous. Um, in other countries where there's, you know, what he did was a coup attempt, but technically it's a self-coup because he right. was already there. He was trying to stay. <laughs> in other countries around the world, like Indonesia, Guatemala, leaders that have a failed self-coup, they're not, they have to leave the country. Right. They're not sitting around trying to run for president or whatever he's going to do and still being the cult leader. So that, that, speaks to the strength of his personality cult, of his whatever the hell he has over all of these uh, Republicans. Um, The fact that every single day I think to myself, you know, Mike Pence could change the game if he spoke out and he's not speaking out. I'm very haunted by this. And of course, the only way to understand that little situation there uh, and, and is authoritarian dynamics. And yet, you know, when I, whether it's on TV or in conversation when I say very like straightforwardly, well, you know, there was a plot to have him harmed or killed. Some people still can't quite digest that. They can't mm-hmm. quite get there. Yeah. And it's kind of fallen off the radar. So well, because he's allowed it to. <laughs> yeah, he's allowed it to. <laughs> and, but that's all very anomalous mm-hmm. uh, in a still functioning democracy. Um, well, I guess that's the, that <laughs> still functioning is the operative term there. Are we? Yes. <laughs> That's so sure. Well, but you know, the, the other thing that is going on now, um, and, and this is what's accelerated, that, that Trump started it by subjecting the GOP to a kind of authoritarian discipline and training. And that meant demonizing external en- enemies and having new enemies like the press. Yep. Um, Democrats are now political enemies, enemies of the state, Biden, but also no internal opposition. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of chronicled that in Strongman up to 2020. But, um, you know, he, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Sorry about that. Oh, yes. But the party, since he lost, and the, which created this huge emergency, right? And then the big lie is really one of the most successful propaganda devices of, of, our, of our times. Mm-hmm. It allowed people psychologically his followers to not have to uh, reckon with the fact that he lost. And so there was no closure for them on, on this. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so 
you know, he, he was able to just continue on. And what's happened is that what we're living through now is the re remaking of the Republican party into uh, a far right authoritarian party at the level of personnel of political class of ideologies. And so um, I wrote a piece for, I think it appeared in the LA times that compared it to other authoritarian party dynamics. And so you have a twofold thing that happens. One is if, if you need to refashion your party for autocratic rule in the future, you have to do like this kind of purge. So you have to get rid of some people and that's the Cheney's, the Kinzinger's, mm -hmm. anybody who is against Trump. But the key is who do you want in your party as the new political class, the new leadership? You need criminals, you need yeah. lawless people. And mm -hmm. so that's a good interpretive frame for a lot of things that have been going on from the fact that to get ahead in the party, you have to pose with an assault rifle. So you show that you are personally associated and capable of violence. And of course, Donald, you know, modeled that January, 2016 telling saying you could shoot someone on fifth yeah. Avenue. So that like mm -hmm. that opened that window. But so a lot of the people being invited in, uh, are now the most lawless extremist people like Mark Fincham, mm -hmm. who was, is a self-proclaimed oath keeper. And he was in the party, but we could say, despite that, or it was just a fact about him. Now mm -hmm. it's a badge of honor. Right. So now he's the Arizona candidate for secretary of state of the Republicans because he's an oath keeper. Right. So, um, just really quickly, I want to remind people yeah. how, what that means. Uh, secretaries of state at the state level do what? They monitor, not monitor, they control elections. They they make sure election results are certified. And he is one of many Republican candidates for that office. And, I, you know, it's similar with uh, Republicans running for state attorneys general, uh, that they will not accept results of election the election if they don't like them. So, you know, and we could talk about why <clears throat> obvious, that's obviously dangerous on its face, but that the Supreme Court is potentially about to give them a big assist in this area uh, yeah. with a case that they're hearing this term. But, you know, that's a little bit farther afield. But you're right. I mean, this guy is now running on the fact that he is an anti-government psycho, which would have been a hindrance uh yeah two years ago probably and, and the the whole like authoritarian playbook the two things that work together very well or three you have propaganda corruption violence and think about if you have a uh, an avowed violent extremist in the situation of um authority over elections because one of the the big plays uh, of this you know kind of taking over the electoral system is to uh, create an environment where polling places, which can now have like poll watchers whose powers have been enhanced. And in many States, the open carry, these people are going to be armed. So it's like a junta. Yep. You're going to go to the polling booth and there's some goon with, with an assault rifle who by law in some States will have, they can be just a few feet away. Um, and there's been but scores of these bills. Give passed. anybody a bottle of water. Because yes, but that don't give anyone bad. a bottle of water. <laughs> so <laughs> you want to associate uh, elections uh, and election denial. You want to get people in there who are also violent. 
so that's where the extremists and the people who are at January 6th who were bashing police heads who are now being invited to run for office. It's very, it's very depressing, but it's familiar. Um, like the fascists and the Nazis were always recruiting criminals to, you know, be in their systems because it's, it's great to have criminals. They don't need to be corrupted. I mean, this is what the Trump, this is why, you know, the, this is one of these things that falls under the radar. Uh, during uh, Trump's presidency, they changed the rules of the civil service application. So you mm-hmm. no longer had to disclose certain things like right. certain conflicts of interest. And so that's, that was a way to get corrupt people in there so that the corruption could spread faster. Yeah. And, and, uh, Donald's been a criminal since his early twenties. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe when he, I wouldn't be surprised if he were a criminal when he was a toddler. Uh, he's precocious in that way, but, uh, you know, he's also gotten away with it, which is another reason, you know, he sort of modeled this behavior and probably made it easier for other people because I think we've seen totally. time after time people willing to go all in with him because they think they will be protected by the umbrella of his untouchability, <laughs> you know, and of course yeah. that doesn't always work out for them. But, you know, there's another thing that you uh, write. Well, actually, before I get to that, what what is a, a little mystifying? I mean, may, maybe mystifying is the wrong word. Um not everybody who is in uh, a Republican in, in office now is new, right? These are people who've been there sometimes yeah. for decades who still, you know, they used to play by a particular set of rules. And to a person, with the exception of Cheney and Kinziger, who, by the way, voted with Donald nine, pl- 93-plus percent of the time, um, only they were willing to draw the line at insurrection – Everybody else, everybody else is going along with it. And, you know, that's it's a little hard for me to think that they have blackmail material or compromise on all of them. Uh, So it's it's almost like the Republican Party at least the modern version of the Republican Party, because, as as you know, the Republican Party is, is changed dramatically since Abraham Lincoln was at the head of it, um, that, that this is, this has been in the party's DNA. I I mean, I, I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the American South during Jim Crow was a closed fascist state. So, so much Mm -hmm. like Italy, this isn't a new, this isn't new. It's just a continuation of a long historical trend. I agree. And what happens in history is you have these, um, these trends and these tendencies that some are overt, uh, like voter suppression was always there, and some are a little more latent or they're fringe. Um, and what happens over and over again is that these demagogues like Donald, they come and they consciously decide that they're going to radicalize, they're gonna have a big tent for all the extremists. And so people who were on the fringes, this happened with Berlusconi too in Italy, um, who also formed Maloney, just as much as Mussolini yep. did. Yep. Uh, he, uh, he brought neo-fascists into the government for the first time since 1945 in Europe. And I was, I was there on and off. And these people who you used to laugh at, they were like these crazy fascists, like with, with connections to Mussolini, the original Mussolini. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of a sudden, they're sitting in parliament. Right. And, and so these things happen. And when that 
when you get those cultural shifts uh, and people see that they can really have power and influence and the party can kind of be revitalized, then they all go along with it. Uh, and that's, that's, but you have to have, that's where the do leaders matter. Well, at certain points in history, they do because you have to have a certain kind of person. And unfortunately Trump fits the bill who has the capacity to both energize people and also, um, channel these certain energies and make people buy into this new direction. Right. Um, yeah. And, and honestly, that's one of the most disturbing parts about what's happening in Italy, um, that Italy did attempt to reckon with its past. They did, uh, at a, you know, a structural level, try to, uh, change the government so that fascism could not, uh, make a resurgence. Um, Mm-hmm. And yet, look, here we are. Uh, nothing like that has ever happened in the United States. So I think uh, if the worst happens in November, the the slide down will be very, very fast. Uh, you know, I don't think we will have two years um, to turn things around. I don't know that we'll be able to turn things around at all uh, because, yeah, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons the propaganda works so well for them is because most most white Americans don't know anything about our history and uh, continue to feel entitled and uh, blinded by white privilege because a lot of them don't care to know that it exists. Um, yeah, but, and that's the purpose of the, all the school laws that, that, yeah. that uh, are, are, are couched, uh, you know, not, they shouldn't have to learn anything that might cause them shame because they don't want you to learn anything. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. uh, they really don't. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. And, and that reminds me of, I, I'm pretty sure you had Ron DeSantis in mind, so we'll get to him in a second. But another thing that I find really fascinating in, in terms of what's happening in the United States right now, I, because in addition to the other points you make about the, the use of propaganda and violence and corruption, there's also this concept of virility and um, you know, which is why we're unfortunate enough to get pictures of Putin topless and whatever here though, there's this really um, bizarre emphasis on manly men, whatever that means. You know, there's this incredible toxic masculinity that's being um, sold by the least man, again, whatever that means, because like, what does it mean to be a man? It's all, it means all sorts of things. But in their view, this macho, strong, um, uh, I guess, fantasy straight guy, you know, the Marlboro man or whatever. Um, we've got Josh Hawley writing a book about masculinity. We've got Ben Shapiro, uh, Right, you know, talking constantly, and Tucker Carlson talking constantly about how real men are being threatened in America. And then, of course, we have their the head of their party, Donald Trump, who, in my experience, is probably the greatest physical coward I've ever met. He's <laughs> full of petty grievances. There's nothing virile about him no. at all. And that's kind of what trips me up. How do they get away with that? Why does anybody 
believe any anything they say. Is it simply because the, the grievance has some kind of alchemical property that, that makes them feel seen and understood? It's also, I spend a lot of time in the book going over this, their hysterical governance culture where they're, because they have all, especially somebody like Putin or old fashioned dictators, they act in an impulsive, emotional, um, irrational manner all the time. And I think I have a phrase, hell hath uh, no fury like a strong man who doesn't get his own way, <laughs> right? Or who wakes up in a bad mood, right. that kind of thing. And you see this with Trump where he's fire, they're firing people, they're hiring people, they're insulting people, they have no filters, right? right? So, but, you know, historically, un- unfortunately, these um, strongman types, they come up uh, regularly when there are periods uh, of, of great social change where there's been a lot of progress in, in, in gender equality. It could be racial emancipation, workers' rights. And so... Uh, white men feel uh, threatened. Uh, and in other parts of the world, like in the Congo is another case study in my book. So it's obviously not white men, but it's the male, the patriarchy is threatened. Right. And that's when these guys come up. And in fact, the real through line is uh, persecution of, of gay people. And, and so the gender politics of authoritarianism, it's like a, it's like a triad. So there's misogyny that gets institutionalized. So you put women down, then you exalt hyper-masculinity. So you've got, you know, Putin with a shirt off and, and Trump had to borrow uh, Sylvester Stallone's body in Rocky Three. <laughs> I um, was going to say, I, he, he doesn't have a version <laughs> of that that's not photoshopped. I know. Like, I still wanted to put that is... in my book, but I couldn't. They wouldn't let me. <laughs> Seriously? Oh. So, I think he, so you have, yeah, you have hyper, so you got hyper-masculinity. So you, you prop up a certain kind of man, the brute, you put down women. And then the third leg of it is you persecute uh, LGBTQ, meaning non-normative male right. sexuality, as well as, right. as women and trans and intersex. So, but that's, that's the, and, and so when it's very, uh, makes perfect sense to me that you have the advent of the Hollies and the tanning testicles and the, you know, Lenny Riefen styles, fascist aesthetics, you know, the fetish of the male, bo- a certain kind of male body, right when uh, we're, it's part of this reaction to the Obama years, legalization of same-sex marriage, the admission of women into combat, um, as well as eight years of African-American president. It right. all goes together. Right. Yeah. And that that sort of brings us to the... Um, the support given to this cause it, in this country uh, by white women, uh, because a majority yeah. of white women continue to vote for this nonsense uh, at the expense of gender equality, and now at the cost of having women in America in 2022 literally being second-class citizens who do not have control over their bodies, and you know, we could have had a we could have had a a, a woman as president. In fact, I believe she was was elected. Uh, but too many things went south. Uh, and speaking of Hillary Clinton, she said something which I 
don't quite, I, I mean, maybe it's out of context. Maybe there was more to it, but I believe she was speaking directly about Georgia Maloney when she said the election of the first woman prime minister in a country always represents a break with the past. And that is certainly a good thing. Is it in this case? Is it a good thing? Yeah, no, that, that's why I started my Atlantic piece with that. I was yeah. like, no, not in this case. Um, so can you talk yeah. about it in the context of gender washing and, and how that works? Because I think it's an incredibly important pe- th- thing for people to understand. Yeah, I can't actually take credit. It's uh, two female political scientists oh. uh, coined it. But it, yeah, but, but you um, would I'm, have um, if they hadn't. So that's okay. I'm circulating their, their, their wisdom, but it's when a female, uh, you know, far right, uh, leaders, um, use their femaleness to, uh, it has two manifestations. One is when they use their softness. And if you look Marine Le Pen and Maloney, they dress in understated ways. Maloney wears pastels. Um, they're very careful to, in a certain way, their image to seem kind of non-threatening. And that is a cover uh, and a compensation for the absolutely brutal racism and real world violent effects that their rhetoric and their policies bring. And the other part is that they pretend to be, um, you know, friends of women. And they get a lot of goodwill. That's where the Hillary Clinton, who's extremely sophisticated and smart, uh, kind of momentarily fell for it. Like, oh, a woman. Wow, yeah. that's great. And people think, especially in Italy, there wouldn't be a woman because maybe they see Italy as more misogynistic or Mediterranean, whatever these stereotypes. Mm-hmm. But this woman, it makes perfect sense uh, because she is a fascist. And she actually uh, is a very tough woman and when she speaks uh in certain certain of her rally speeches there's one that's absolutely terrifying from this past june in spain she spoke she's fluent in spanish she spoke to a far-right party vox she's screaming in a way that if you're triggered by hitler or you you are you you can't have you can't stand people screaming uh you can't watch it it'll be too upsetting and when I saw it, I thought, oh, my God, she's like a Mussolini. And I don't say this lightly. I've spent many hours, uh, too many hours watching Mussolini scream at Italians. Yeah. Um, so she, she, that's the real Maloney. And yet people fall for this. They think she's going to be good for women. Now, if you look at what her party's actually done in the places that they've governed locally, you know, just as we can look at Florida or Texas and they want to scale it up, we can look at Verona or other areas where her party's governing. And what do they do? They make abortion harder to access. Yep. So abortion uh, is a big deal to get abortion uh, rights in 1978 because Italy has the Vatican sitting inside it. That's like no other country has right. the Vatican sitting inside <laughs> it. So in, they don't, I don't know if she's going to try and get rid of uh, you know, abortion, uh, but they make it, it's just like, you don't get rid of elections today. You, you game the system, right? They're making it very difficult to access, uh, abortion services. Well, you already mentioned that. that, that, that. Yeah. Yeah. The trend has taken hold. Was it Verona that, that is calling itself a a pro-life city? But that's, that is how it starts, isn't it? It's, it's things don't yeah. get codified right away. Uh, we, they just sort of create an atmosphere that that's makes, it. right. Yeah. And um, I, I think that 
you know, we're long down that road here. Um, yeah, we are. Every day I, you know, I'm trying not to think about it too much because the election is 40 days away and which, you know, is, is a, a long time in, in, in the sense of, uh, your day to day life, but it is also a terrifyingly short period of time. But, you know, there's really nothing I, I can do except what we're doing right now, talk about it and hope, hope people are listening. But whenever I do think about the election in November, I am, I just have this moment. It's very similar to what happened to me the first two years that Donald was in office. I would just be going about my business and suddenly be struck by the knowledge that he was in the white house. And it was a really jarring, horrible feeling. And obviously, you know, the worst hasn't happened yet and hopefully it won't in November, but I, I have a similar sense of, like, how is this even fucking close? Like, how how is it possible that on the one hand, uh, Democrats are offering choice and reproductive justice and living wages and Social Security and Medicare and on and on and on and on. And the Republicans are literally at this point offering tax cuts for rich people, destruction of the planet and hate and cruelty. <laughs> And yet we don't know. It's it's like practically a toss up who's going to be in power. And and it's I think it's that kind of disbelief that that uh, handcuffs us a little bit because I think so. Right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, if if you know we the de- Democrats with a small D have no response and no parallel of the extremely formidable right-wing media machine. Um, Not just Fox News, but all of it. You know, if you look at, um, there was something on Twitter where Kara Swisher had a a new podcast. And so there was a ranking of podcasts and hers was at the top, but all the rest of them were, you know, Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino, all these right-wing people, the first five. Or if you go to Amazon and you look up books on authoritarianism, they're all by right-wing people like Ben Shapiro. And the, the authoritarianism is coming from the Democrats. So they have, they have effectively control of, of the narrative over tens of millions of people who they've been doing this with such repetition. I mean, you know, think Tucker Carlson's a very effective propagandist. He's there mm-hmm. all the time hammering away. Mm-hmm. Donald, 120-plus tweets every day for years. Mm-hmm. So they have been collectively so effective at shaping a worldview for millions of Americans where Democrats are now a political enemy, that um, that's how you get to the situation you described. I also think um, that I was very, very disturbed when I read that the Texas GOP passed a resolution where they call Biden an illegitimate president and they call him an acting president. Yeah. An acting president. And this is, a, for the moment, uh, a rhetorical reality. There are words. But this is setting up an impeachment uh, or some other kind. I mean, a third of my book's about coups. So some mm-hmm. action. I don't know what it's going to be. Uh, but that is, this is one of these things you're saying, you know, these small things happen and then they push the window of possibility 
And if you call the president an acting president, it means he's like not staying around very long. He's supposed to be leaving. So I worry about that. Right. And he's acting in place of some, the person who should be there. Uh, you know, so, um, (laughs) I actually, I used to do a weekly piece called get the fascists off the list, which tracked exactly what you were talking about. Amazon, Apple podcasts, uh, Substack because eight out of the ten top political Substacks yeah. are 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 you know right wing or right wing adjacent like Barry Wise, um, and I stopped doing it because the list never fucking changed and it was just demoralizing. Yeah. So like, what was the point? Um, but you you write about in in your towards the end of your book, you know, you write about how to combat authoritarianism and and two two things that that make so much sense uh prioritize transparency and accountability right well hmm. how do we do that when um one the media for the most part seems either completely happy to have this country be an authoritarian fascist country or um don't want to make that difficult call Right. So they pretend to be neutral. Um, and the Democrats, you know, I'm trying, I try very hard to pull my punches when it comes to Democrats because yeah. we're not living in normal times. And it's not like we can, I don't think we can criticize Democrats on policy right now because the alternative is what Donald, I mean, imagine where we would be if Joe Biden had it won. Right. However, when it comes to strategy and where what we need to be doing in, in advance of the midterms, I I don't, I still don't think the Democrats, despite Biden's very good speech, uh, a couple of, well, it seems like 7 billion years ago, but I think it was a couple of months ago. Um, apparently the only important thing about that speech was that two Marines were standing by him behind him, but you know, it was a speech about, uh, the dangers of what he called MAGA Republicans, because I don't think he can go all the way and indict the entire party. But with, with that exception, there doesn't seem to be the level of urgency and the level of honesty with the American voter that necessary in order for transparency and accountability to have, um, you know, the, uh, the atmosphere in which to thrive or exist even. Yeah, I I agree. And, and there also has to be um, much more of connecting the dots for Americans, for example, on climate change, right? Climate change, fossil fuel, who is supported by fossil fuel, um, who is supported by hate. And, and I think um, why that's not happening. I mean, there are many politicians doing it. It's just such a large country. If you, when you study these other countries where, you know, there's been some success, they're much smaller and they're also multi-party systems. Yeah. We are, yes. we have a big problem that, that the, the, what, what Trump did was to, again, he, he put this authoritarian discipline onto that party and unified it where you can't speak out. It has, it has a pretty monolithic message, has many messages, but they're all, they have to be. 
Whereas Democrats, that's not the nature of Democrats, and the Democratic Party is many parties in one. I remember AOC said, you know, in another country, I wouldn't even been, be in the same party that's as right. Biden. And so there's no maneuverability, there's no flexibility. And in other places, you've been able to, if people uh, feel disaffected from a party that's becoming a right-wing authoritarian party, they can leave. And so this is like the problem of the third party. Yeah. So so that's there. We have structural problems uh, in our system that that until recently people thought, oh, it's so stable in America. And look at those you know, other countries, they're constantly changing governments. They're so chaotic and we're so great with our bipartisan system. Well, now that's, I see it as a huge problem. Um, even someone like Liz Cheney, who, as we know, didn't even vote for the, you know, John Lewis Voting Advance Act. That's She's right. no hero in some ways, but she doesn't have anywhere to go. Right. Um, yeah. So it, 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 pre- it precludes a dynamism. It's like these two mm-hmm. huge monoliths and so what 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 do you do when there's an emergency i know you started with the, we started with the media and we got to but no but this is this it, is this is a, an incredibly important point because i don't know i mean what can we do about the media i george soros get on it please you know start some kind of huge <laughs> liberal network i'm supposed to get my check with my last name i'm supposed to be like a card-carrying globalist but i haven't right? gotten my check either Oh God, it's so. just, we're running out of time, George, come on. Um, but, and we should both have our own shows on George Soros's uh, vast <laughs> liberal left-wing uh, globalist network. But the, it's the structural problems yeah. that, because you're right, the party, well, I mean, the, t- the parties are too monoliths in the sense that there isn't anywhere else to go. Um, however, the Republicans, because they keep kicking people out of their party, are truly monolithic in this that they're all white, straight, Christian predominantly, um, misogynist men or women, uh, and Democrats are everything else. <laughs> so um, that does make maneuverability difficult. And what's really frustrating about that is that the smaller and more homogenous the Republicans have gotten, it feels like they've gotten more powerful. Uh, and that's because they've been able that, to use the system yeah. against us. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the dynamic. And um, but to go back to the accountability uh, issue and and you know that there, there are we we really need this different kind of messaging that is um, talking about outcomes. So, for example, let's take gun violence because um, I'm starting to talk to to trying to talk to business people about like you know what uh, authoritarianism isn't going to be good for business. This is one of the biggest myths that oh it brings stability and calm. So. Uh, if you look at the, the issue of gun violence, instead of talking about getting, if you're speaking to people that who are not already uh, uh, converted to progressivism, instead of getting into the issue of gun rights, you get you focus on outcomes. Is $280 billion a year, the, which is the cost of gun violence, is that good for business? Well, very few people would say, yes, it's good for business. It's bad for the economy. Yeah. So in the same way, talking about outcomes of fossil fuels, talking about outcomes of people who um, who 
uh, who incite violence, low-level violence, uh, hate crimes, looking at economic and other outcomes is a way to connect the dots for people and talk about accountability. And that's not happening. Um, there are individual strategists who are very good on this, but at a party level, at a national level, um, and, and also journalists are not having on some of the people who should be saying those things to the centrist shows, to the right. legacy networks, the ABC. Right. Um, I'm very rarely on uh, ABC, NBC, CBS. Right. Um, where many undecided voters, many independent voters, they watch those shows. Right. The CBS Evening News, right? Yeah, they and yet CBS hi- hires like Mick me. Mulvaney. So, right. Go figure. So that's the other. That's the other problem. If you're going to hire people like that, what is your message about accountability? So it's it's messaging at a different level to connect the dots, talking about outcomes um, in ways that the average person who may be a small business owner who's undecided voter can understand. So there are things we can do, um, but they're not being done at the scale we need them to be done. And they're not being done fast enough. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think Republicans are historically better at connecting things to the economy, even as yes. they, they strive to destroy the economy. Cause last I checked, yes. Republicans are the only ones who've ever held the country hostage over the debt or over raising or not raising the debt ceiling, as the case may be. Um, also, you know, uh, they focus on gas prices and inflation, uh, neither of which is under any one person's control, even the president of the United States. And uh, nobody seems to, people seem to ignore the fact that the, the Democrats are the party that would, you know, pay people living wage so they could withstand uh the ups and downs of, or the downs of a bad economy. Um, but it's, yeah, the, just the message isn't there. And unfortunately, of course, the economy does seem to be the main driver of, um, who people vote for, even if the person they're voting for will make things worse because they're being lied to. There's a lot of lying going on and that's, that's part of the problem. But, one more thing about accountability I wanted to ask you. What do we make of a country that ha- cannot hold accountable, or I guess the structure of a government, right, that cannot hold accountable the very people who tried to overthrow that government and not only can't hold them accountable, but are allowing them to stay in positions of power within the government. So it's not just Donald. It's Cruz. It's Hawley. Yeah. It's no, in fact, um, if you study coups, um, like it was very evident to me that, um, from the very, like basically the day it happened that we were going to find out in time that a very large range of Republican actors were involved. It has to be that way. And we've seen through the investigate, through the hearings, right. That, that are very, very valuable. And every time they air, I think, okay, we wouldn't have this in many countries around the world. There wouldn't right. be a January 6th committee investigation. There would never right. be hearings. Right. So, and, and, you know, and then the Secret Service and the more and more institutions uh, are re- being revealed to have been somehow touched by this coup attempt. Um, and I, I was on, a, I was on an um, event a few months ago uh, with other coup specialists. And there was one person who was, 
from the conservative angle. And he said, it wasn't a coup. It was just a disturbance because the institutions were involved. Because if you want to do a narrow um, definition of a coup, old fashioned, it involved the military. Fine. The military wouldn't play Trump's game. But as it turns out, the Secret Service was involved. The National Guard was involved. There were all kinds of things involved, right? Mm-hmm. All kinds of institutions. And, um, and so that needs, that's the kind of thing. And, and all these people, the Mark Meadows, they, they're just going around doing their business, publishing their books, uh, getting deals. And this is a sign of profound corruption within the system. Um, and profound, even if we don't want to say corruption, profound inadequacy yeah. of mechanisms of accountability. It's it's really astonishing. Um, if you study if you study coups and authoritarian takeovers, it's it's really awful and for what that says about protecting our country in the future. And it's it's an instance in which passed this prologue. I mean, we 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 had. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't. We could go all the way back to uh, the post-bellum uh, situation with Robert E. Lee, but let's just go back to Nixon for a second. You know, he was impeached, but he resigned, and he was able to rehabilitate himself. And the thing that just is mind blowing is he was impeached for the wrong thing. Uh, he committed a much greater crime that resulted in the deaths of tens of thousands of Americans because he played an instrumental role in prolonging the Vietnam war. Um, You know, so now we have Donald 50 years later, uh, who is directly and indirectly responsible for the deaths of over a million Americans uh, and weakening this country to a degree that I believe is unprecedented in history. Uh, weakening the Western alliance, threatening the existence of NATO. And um, then, as you said, attempting a self-coup, which he almost pulled off. I don't think people understand how close mm-hmm. how close we That's... came that day. And by the way, mm-hmm. he succeeded to this extent. He that the the election, I'm sorry, the um, certification of, of the Electoral College was not carried out on the day it's supposed to be carried out. So uh, that's not nothing either. So how do we, it seems, one of the problems seems to be conveying this to people in a way that's comprehensible. It, you know, and I, I think about what what Donald is finally dealing with now. Um, if, if you're objective, you think, okay, this is a person who's gotten away with stuff for a really long time and hopefully it's catching up with him, which is why there's so many investigations and, and lawsuits, et cetera. But if you're inclined to support him, it's going to seem like uh, people are out to get him because it's unthinkable that one person can have committed so many crimes and gotten away with them. And I think that's part of what we're kind of grappling with right now. Yeah, I agree. And, and in fact, another unprecedented thing is that, um, you know, Trump must be very uh, doubly feeling like the victim because his big lie thing didn't work for him. Right. Like he wasn't actually able to stay in office, but the party embraced it. They yeah. embraced the coup. They yeah. are all living high off the big lie. In fact, right. there's now a plethora of mini Trumps Then anybody can become a little Trump. And if they don't like the result of the election, they can just say it didn't happen. And look at 
And he must be particularly upset with uh, Mr. Ron DeSantis, who uh, has learned all of his lessons and yep. was, as the most uh, ruthless of the bunch, uh, was the earliest to start his office of, quote, election crimes. And now he made those like sham arrests and yep. uh, he's learned all of, all of the lessons. But he's flourishing and Trump's in limbo, which right. increases the odds that he has to run for office because he's got to get back in and shut everything down, take revenge. That's I have right. zero doubt that, that this is how strong men are. Um, yes. I was going to ask you that, so I'm glad you went there. Can yes. Once they are get in the system, look at Berlusconi. Right. He was, it's very important. Uh, Berlusconi had an enormous personality cult. He was so corrupt, uh, I, I can't even describe. He was ultimately convicted after he was forced to resign. They started prosecuting him, and they tried to prosecute him. Dozen, he had dozens of corruption trials while he was prime minister. Nothing could touch him because he would change the laws. Like if he was accused of bribery, he got parliament to change the law so bribery was no longer punishable with jail. Like that's what he would do. For years he did this stuff. So finally he's booted out because of the Eurozone crisis. They prosecute him and he's convicted. So he's a convicted criminal. He's back in power now and he's a convicted criminal. The key thing was that prosecution was the only way that his personality cult started to deflate and his party finally lost its hold. And he was banned for politics for five years. And that's what made his party go from the mighty powerhouse to now it got like 7%. The fact he's back in power again, it means that once they're in the system, you never really get rid of them. Right. However, his most uh, lethal, dangerous self was deflated because he was prosecuted and convicted. Convicted. Do you think we're capable of that kind of action against um, somebody who, um, you know, was in the Oval Office and was protected by that, by a very corrupt DOJ, but let's be honest, is still being protected by the DOJ in at least one instance. They they took over the defamation case that uh, Eugene yeah. Carroll brought against him. Um, yeah. So I, obviously we know more now about what the DOJ is doing in other arenas, but do do are we as a country capable, do you think, of of taking that kind of... I guess, you know, I guess it would be considered drastic since we've never done it before. Action. But but everything, I think, I mean, I don't buy the unprecedented myself because everything about Trump was unprecedented. He had no, yeah. he was unlike any other president. He was an autocrat. Yeah, that's true. So, so that everything he did was unprecedented. The guy yeah. spent one out of every three days visiting Trump branded properties. Like nobody else ever did that. And it, just to, to, there's so many other things one could say that right. he did, right. <laughs> uh, bigger and smaller. Yes, we, so, we, we unfortunately we don't have seven seven years to to go through the list of transgressions. <laughs> God, yeah, yeah, it, it's it's incredible. Um, I think we're capable of it. I think there are many people in government, like Jamie Raskin and, and many others, yeah. who who get the severity. Uh, I think that um, I, I don't know why uh, January 6th didn't, um, you know, make more of an imp impetus besides the uh, January 6th hearings 
to uh, to to get this guy out because the only thing that's going to stop um, and he's so dangerous right now that now he's cultivating the QAnon tribe. Yeah, this this is very very dangerous. And he, why is he doing it? It's because when when a strongman's uh, personality cult and authority starts to waver, because he's been out of office a long time. You've got mm-hmm. DeSantis. DeSantis is backed by forty five billionaires right now. That was the last, it last, it went from 40 to 45 in the last two weeks. He's got a huge amount of support for whatever the heck he wants to do. Right. And so Trump's star is a little shaky. Yep. And so what is he doing? He's getting a new bespoke army of thugs to use as his bidding. So he did that in January 6th, but some of those people are prosecuted now. And now he's got a, an existing cult. It's very, he's very smart as propagandist. You take an existing cult, and you try and get them to transfer their uh, affections and, and blind loyalty onto you. And then you have a ready-made army. Um, and so I'm really, I was very frightened when I saw that uh, rally with them, like hailing him, like he's the, you know, Hitler 2.0. That, that's not good. No, uh, that might might be the understatement <laughs> of the uh, century. It is not good. Um, and it's it's another instance of of how, and I hate, I hate saying well, it's not really a compliment unless you're, well, he would consider it a compliment, how good he is at using microaggression and microconcession uh, to yes. get people to do his bidding. And, and the biggest danger is like he was already able to get people who were probably, you know, relatively well-adjusted people to cross certain lines. And now he's yeah. got people who there are no lines. They'll do anything because they're yeah, that, that's how it ends up, right? Yeah, that's how that's how these things end up, um, and each situation is different. And what's ex- what's the what's so extraordinary about this entire Trump, uh, what can we call it, experience, is that it's <laughs> all happened. I think night, nightmare, nightmare, works. <laughs> nightmare. It's all happened in 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 an open society because. The other people whose cults have been, I mean, Berlusconi's, but Berlusconi owned like almost all the TV networks. Right. <laughs> so, so he had, he had uh, an easier time of it. And it's a much smaller but, country. But Trump also, Berlusconi, like Mussolini, founded his own party. Here, yeah. Trump came in to this storied grand old party, took it over. And totally changed the, the in, in really short period of time, all of the party dynamics, media landscape, everything. Twitter became, fun, you know, just focused on him. It's like, a, it, it's quite extraordinary what he's been able to do, considering we're not a one-party state. Uh, right. We're not even an Orban state. Right. So these, yes. these dangerous figures have to be taken out of circulation uh, with prosecution. If not... Uh, they never really go away. And here we have Berlusconi's back in government again as a convicted criminal. Right. Wiretap, excuse me, great. Wiretapping, tax fraud, um, bribery, sex with a minor, and something I'm forgetting. Those were his categories of conviction. First, I thought you were talking about things Donald could be indicted for. They're they're Um, very similar. That's why I'm, I'm using, he's a very good, that's why I want to keep mentioning him because yeah. he he's he was gone and now he's back. Yeah, and he will, <laughs> you know, with the uh, ascent of uh, Maloney, he 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 will 
share in that power, I'm sure, in some way, because uh, she's probably yeah. indebted to him, and uh, they're all they're on the same page. Um, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the the cult issue. Like, how do you start a cult in an open society? Because that's also been driving me crazy. Cults are closed systems. They are heavily monitored. They are uh, top down. They are very difficult to break out of everything is controlled everything from the what you eat to what you sleep to how you are allowed to communicate with others or not outside of it and um the only explanation i've been able to come up with is that because we've become so because uh media have become so siloed and people have you know that there there is very little um interaction among people who think different like i don't have any friends anymore who are republicans and i'm i guess that that's just what's getting replicated right because donald is so is so divisive it's one of his great skills that he's mm -hmm. made it um shameful to have anything to do with somebody who isn't a hundred percent supportive of him mm -hmm. it's the only thing i can think of yeah, and the, and don't just the pandemic um, yes. uh, was that, hugely influential because such a good point. Civil healthy civil society uh, is is maintained because let's you don't have to be in a small town. You can even everybody within big cities. You have your neighborhood, right? And in that neighborhood, you go do stuff and you cross paths with all kinds of people, and you may know that they don't share your um, you know your political views, but you are doing things together. Right. or you're in church together. And with all of that removed, all of that interchange removed and people sitting at home, like my mother became radicalized during the pandemic. She lives in England in a, in a villa, a small village. And she started watching RT, Russia Today. And she became, she went from a queen loving conservative to a, a far right wacko uh, who wow. was talking all about like Putin was never mentioned in our home before or right. by her. And she, the day she said to me, why isn't Biden doing what Putin wants? I almost fell off my chair. I, I thought, Oh my God, I study this stuff. And here she is becoming an agent of the Kremlin, which is what <laughs> the Kremlin playbook. And why did this happen? Because she wasn't going to the coffee shop. She wasn't going to the florist. She wasn't, mixing with people she was sitting home watching rt and so this is what the pen this that was the contri contribution of the pandemic to this um siloing that's such a good point and the other thing too is that during the pandemic i you know it was really difficult to be happy about anything so grievance played well anger played because we we're all angry and terrified and aggrieved just by the fact that we were trapped and and worried constantly uh about ourselves and people we love and and isolated of course so that's yeah you you throw all of that into the mix and it shouldn't surprise anybody <laughs> that we are where we are the only i probably the only thing that should surprise us is that biden won right yeah that's why i <laughs> Again, I'm going to, I started as an optimism and come back to. Thank you. I, because otherwise nobody's going to be able to sleep tonight. So please, please say something. And we it. haven't talked about the globalist puppet master conference yet. Oh, um, <laughs> we'll have to do that next um, time, but I need to hear more about that. 
Um, it's a conference that Bannon is putting on just to let everybody know. It's and really called it? Globalist. Um, well, it was supposed to be at the Hilton um, in Torrance, California. Oh, that's California. right. I'm sorry. You just told me. You it's told me really called Globalist Puppet Masters. Who are they? What are they doing? It's like um, a, a tutorial on Globalist Puppet and Masters. And thanks I'm to not you, this up. Hilton and I is regretting Hilton, it so terribly. Hopefully. Hopefully, but the fact, oh but also God. like, why isn't Steve Bannon in jail? Like why? And that's another huge problem. I don't want to go down this another road, great. but right. It's like, if these people were in jail, they wouldn't be able to keep stirring things up. So give us a little bit of optimism and maybe even hope, please. Well, you yeah, many people thought that Biden wouldn't win. And also it's just really important that we, since Trump came in, we had two of the biggest, uh, nonviolent mass protests that we've ever had. And that is a recognized, you know, the history of resistance, mass nonviolent protest is extremely important all over the world. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to talk more about the Women's March. We never talk about it anymore. And it was just so important. And thousands of women went into office and into politics. And then in the middle of the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter, which involved up to 20 million Americans, that had a direct result in Biden's victory. It was, it was a contribution. Right? It, it was wasn't just one day. Yeah. So, uh, and, and even the reaction that's uh, happened after the Supreme Court, you know, aggression on abortion rights, there, there's so many women uh, are, are rushing to register to vote. There's a, there's a tangible... Yeah grassroots reaction. So I never really, I never want to give up on the American people. You, you, you never, you never know. Uh, and there is a way in which um, uh, some, it may take them till the 11th hour, mm-hmm. but people uh, un- understand the stakes um, and um, act accordingly. I'm absolutely with you. Uh, I was having dinner with a couple of friends and and both of them were like, no, we're going to lose in November. I said, absolutely not. I refuse to concede that we still have time and, and we, you know, nobody knows, nobody knows. So uh, we, we have to act like we're going to, well, actually we need to act like we're running 10 points behind, but we can catch up but only if yeah. everybody votes. I think I think that's, you know, nobody get complacent and nobody get hopeless. I, I think that's the line Democrats need to walk. So I appreciate that reminder because it is hard sometimes to uh, remind ourselves yeah. that things think not only can things get better, but but we are the agents of that. Uh, so, Ruth, I so appreciate your coming on. I love talking to you. Uh, you are so expert at explaining this complex, important information in a way that doesn't just make sense, but it's compelling. And, um, you know, I've learned so much from you. So thank you for being here. Uh, It was great to see you, even though virtually. And uh, hopefully you can join us, uh, join me in the Nerd Avengers for a strategy session one of these days or the next January 6th hearing, if that hopefully ever happens. That happens. Well, yeah. thank you. I, I, I feel the same way. Uh, and your, your writings and uh, everything you do has been very important. Uh, thank so, you thank so much. You. And um, I will see you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you so much to my extraordinary guest, Ruth Ben-Giat. She's smart. She knows this stuff so incredibly well, and it's so relevant right now. And I'm also honored to be able to call her my friend. And thank you to all of you for joining us this evening. Um, You can catch the next Mary Trump Show strategy session with the Narrative Avengers next Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on youtube.com slash Politicon. And of course, our next, our regular Thursday show is uh, next week at 9 p.m. Eastern. Sorry, not 9 p.m. What time is it? 7 p.m. 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, also at youtube.com slash Politicon. And while you're on Politicon's uh, YouTube channel, Please subscribe to Politicon. It's free. It's just, uh, you know, we want to increase the numbers of people who subscribe, like the episode, click on this bell, uh, because that way you will be notified whenever a uh, new video drops, uh, because in addition to the regular shows, we have our emergency sessions, we have live streams of January 6th hearings or important speeches, and uh, some of my shorter videos. And of course, you can also listen in podcast form on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And a five-star review would be very much appreciated because it really helps other people find the show. And the more people listening, the better. We've got 40 days to uh, get momentum going and pull it out, pull out a win uh, in on the... Uh, Election Day. I think it's November 8th. It's so close. It's kind of terrifying. So um, there's a lot we can do, though, in the meantime. So spread the word. And thank you again so much for being here tonight. Uh, I will see you next Tuesday. Have a wonderful weekend. And in the meantime, please stay safe and be kind. <laughs>